I want to rock. I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. I want to sleep with common people. I want to sleep with common people like you. Welcome to Rock Talk, the podcast where we talk rock and roll all night and podcast every day. We are your hosts, John Otney. And Colin Westman. And looking at today's set list, you like all the, the rock puns and terminology I'm putting in here? Love it. Can never get enough of it. It looks like we'll be talking about Britpop. Let me set the stage here for you. Let me take you back. So there was a time that cool kids remember. You may have heard of it. It's called the 90s. And it was a time of uh, economic prosperity, friends, and slow internet. But it was also a highly influential time for music. Here in America, we had this little thing called grunge. And that was a genre where people would dress up like unemployed lumberjacks and sludge away on guitars and sing about, I don't know, Colin, what do grunge people sing about? Just, just being miserable. Being miserable, <laughs> suicide. Uh, Sons that are black holes. Yep. <laughs> but across the pond, there was another popular movement of Bruin. Something lighter, catchier, something very British. And this was known as Britpop. So, Colin, how would you describe Britpop to someone who's never heard of it? Mm. <laughs> like, what makes Britpop Britpop, I guess? Like... What what makes it its own genre? I mean, like, what I are think the... definitely the description you gave, in that it was kind of an antidote to grunge because it was this very sort of, I don't know, good times music, <laughs> for lack of a better word. You know, it's it was very poppy, upbeat, uh, sort of decadent, um, where these bands. Kind of, I feel like there is sort of a celebration of Britishness in in all those bands because I feel like they're all kind of influenced by a lot of the different eras of, of British rock music. I mean, specifically like 60s pop. I mean, the Beatles kind of loom large over a lot of Britpop bands. But also you find influences of New Wave and... Uh, like the jangly guitar stuff of like the Smiths too. And also there's kind of a bit of uh, like the rave dance thing of the eighties too. It's just, uh, and it, it's usually guitar based music. A lot of it is very anthemic and like big and kind of built to be <laughs> played in front of those just gigantic audiences. You see at those British uh, music festivals where it looks like there's like a million people in the crowd and it's like who wants just to go to England this came yeah. to the show. <laughs> like, I think that's how that works just everybody in all the UK gets a day off from work so they can go watch Oasis do their thing you know something that you said that stood out to me was guitar bass because you think about like 80s like English pop music and it's very synth heavy it's very like drum pads mm -hmm. and something that i noticed while listening to a lot of these Britpop bands is more of a return to yeah guitars real drums 
more more rockin'. Uh, a lot of these bands also used orchestras a lot. It was kind of like getting away from all the synthetic stuff and returning to like real instruments. Of course, there's some bands we need to talk about that experimented with synths and stuff. I mean, a lot of these bands started in the late 80s, so it's kind of a transitional period. So there's a whole slew of Britpop bands. Um, we'll be talking about the four big ones. Um, I'm not sure who came up with that, the big four. I think it was The Guardian, that magazine, maybe? Yeah. And those those big four bands would be Suede, Pulp, Oasis, and Blur. And we're going to talk about each of those, some um, more extensive than others. Uh, I guess we could also give a shout-out to some of the other Britpop bands. You know, Supergrass, Verve, I guess. Uh, this band Elastica I really like, who are kind of... <laughs> tied to both Blur and Suede uh, Interesting. because they were fronted by Justine Frischman who actually was in Suede like before their first album because she was dating uh, what's that guy's name? The lead singer, Brett Anderson and then they broke up and then she started dating Damon Albarn and then also started Elastica who were they made one really good like debut album, and then I feel like they kind of missed their window for a follow-up because that album came out in 95, and their next one didn't come out till 2000, whereas like, Britpop was over <laughs> by then. I mean, that's another thing about Britpop, and just a lot of these kind of rock sub-genres that happen. It's, there's usually a window of like a few years, and Britpop was kind of like 93 to 97, I feel like, was when these bands were putting out their sort of big albums. That's very true that there was a window, because one of my favorite Britpop albums is the debut album by The Laws, which came out in 1990, which seems too early. And, uh, you know, that that album did have kind of a hit single, There She Goes. I think it got more popular when it got covered by Sixpence None the Richer in the 90s, but uh, later in the 90s. But I'm a big fan of that early Laws album. I know the bass player in The Laws went on to form a band called Cast. I don't know if you've heard of them. They come up sometimes in Britpop conversations. Well, the other thing to mention, I guess Britpop kind of also evolved out of shoegaze, I guess, too, was kind of the big (laughs) musical movement in the late 80s, early 90s. But again, like... (laughs) I mean, just just from the 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 title of shoegaze, it's more sort of <laughs> moodier, less upbeat music than than these Britpop bands. What a weird name for a genre of music! So you're like like you're just like looking at. I your think shoes? It's, yeah, you're just looking at your shoes while you're playing guitar instead of at the audience because you're like kind of shy and introverted and just strumming along on your super distorted guitar. <laughs> hey, looking at my loafers. Wonder what's going on down there. That's what it yeah. is. We're going to get <laughs> so much hate mail from all those shoegaze fans out there. So before we get into some of these bands, I was wondering if you uh, if you have like a moment in your life where you first like became aware of Britpop. Because I know I have like a moment, so I don't know if everybody has that, like that epiphany or just like that dis- initial discovery. I'm not sure when I knew that this was sort of a movement that happened. Because I mean... The thing about Britpop is I feel like it's it was <laughs> like the last movement in rock music to happen before I was kind of aware of what was going on in rock music. Like for me, I feel like the first time I knew that there was like a, a 
these these happenings that would come in waves in terms of rock history was the garage rock movement and this was like happened right before that so i don't feel like i knew much about it when it was happening at the time but i mean certainly oasis were the first band i became aware of that are associated with Britpop because unlike most of these bands oasis were actually like pretty huge in america like a lot of these bands were pretty huge in the uk but for whatever reasons not many of them had like a crossover hit certainly not the size of of wonderwall but I'm guessing when I first became aware of Wonderwall and Oasis was like on a, a VH1 <laughs> countdown or something, like top 100 songs of the 90s or like, I remember, you probably remember this too, when MTV2 did like these countdowns of like best albums of the MTV era. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like hosted by like Will I Am <laughs> or someone like that. And the, and I feel like, who's this, or what the fuck's the name of that? <laughs> What's the story? Morning Glory was on one of those or something. But that, that was kind of my introduction. I think I have two moments. So I, I think I was definitely aware of Wonderwall in the 90s, but I probably didn't know who did it, and I probably didn't care that much. But then I remember, you know, I had older siblings, so MTV was kind of on in the house sometimes. And it was probably relatively new, or maybe a, two, a few years after it had come out. It was the music video for All Around the World, Oasis. That dumb music video that's yeah. like a yellow submarine <laughs> knockoff, but it's animated backgrounds, but live action like band members in it. And I, I remember yeah. kind of getting that melody stuck in my head. But at the same time, I, 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 my first instinct was to not like Oasis because I thought they were too much like the Beatles. I thought they were ripping them off. Well, yeah, from watching that video... <laughs> You definitely get that impression. He's got the circular sunglasses and they got all the like Pepperland type bullshit in the background. I was like, this is a ripoff. I don't like this. And then I remember seeing an SNL sketch from around maybe the same time, maybe a few years later, maybe a few years earlier. I definitely saw it when it was rerun where it's like British Parliament. No, I remember the sketch also. <laughs> yeah, and there's somebody who keeps shouting like, I think we should agree that Oasis is the greatest band since the Beatles. And it's weird because it's clearly like a sketch that was very satirical of something going on at that time. But all anyone remembers from it is the fact that Oasis kept coming up. <laughs> uh, yeah, those are my two my two big memories um, becoming aware about Britpop music. So let's talk about some of these bands. I think we should probably talk about. Well, should we just talk about Oasis first, since we're already kind of talking about them? I thought we get we get. We get swayed out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> so we know the least about them. I listened to their to their second album. It was not easy to find. You said it wasn't mm-hmm. streaming, right? No, that's one thing I had a hard time uh, 
even listening to this band because their music isn't on like Apple Music or Spotify. So I actually had to buy the first Suede album on CD, which I was okay with. <laughs> and then, yeah, I just listened to the second one on YouTube. So that was just like a, like a I don't know what you want to call it, a blind buy? Like you didn't really know what you're in for when you bought it? You just bought it anyways? Um, I think I'd heard a few of their songs. I watched like a couple of their videos. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> okay, so you bought the first one and you also heard the second one. I only heard the second one. It's funny, I have one note. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's funny because we already said this. The note that I wrote was shoegazing. Now, I don't know if you agree with that, but when I heard this, it seemed very reverby guitars, like kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Like it definitely reminded me of that movement a bit, but also the singer seemed pretty British. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I would agree with that as far as their second album. I feel like yeah. you should have maybe listened to their first album because it's definitely more accessible. It, it's definitely got more like hooks and a clearer song structure. And it's more like sort of glam rock, I feel like. Like that singer, he definitely has that sort of tone where like Bowie would go up really high, <laughs> you know. And, uh,. Yeah, it, it's I, I think I like the first album more actually, but the second album is the one I feel like critics usually praise, and it's yeah, it's definitely a bigger sort of, but also kind of muddier album. Uh, but it's pretty good. <laughs> I feel bad. I only checked out the second album. I just I looked at a list and they said it was the best, so like that's what I did. Yeah. It's, it's, no problem i mean that's one that i feel like maybe i sh i should spend more time with to definitively say which one i like better just because as i said the second one doesn't seem quite as accessible i know like a big part of that band was that uh <laughs> brett anderson and the guitarist his name bernard butler like super hated each other <laughs> and like like that second album's kind of fueled by that of them just kind of trying to go as big as possible with both the guitar playing and the singing just and uh but then i think that guitarist left after that album oh. yeah i didn't really like the singing i thought it was a little whiny something about it didn't i didn't like mm -hmm. i think all right, Colin, who'd you like to talk about next? I guess we could talk about Pulp. I didn't really discover until looking at like the pitchfork best albums of the nineties 
at some point, I don't know, this was probably in college, and there's this band Pulp, and they were like, <laughs> I'd, I'd never heard of them, and whatever little blurb they had about them sounded interesting, because Britpop was this thing I knew, but for whatever reason, you know, I, I liked Oasis, I could never quite get into Blur, and so I was like, well, let's, let's see how I feel about Pulp, and I just really liked the... Their big album, Different Class, uh, is just, I don't know, they're just a super fun band, but they also, I don't know, they have like this weird sort of like darker side to them too, and they just, I guess, I guess it's, it's mostly comes down to Jarvis Cocker, it's just a, an interesting front man to me because he, <laughs> he has all this sort of confidence and like bravado but he's also like kind of goofy too like you see him running around the stage and he like acts like he's this sort of sexual dynamo or something but he's also you know like this tall awkward nerd and he writes these just i i really like his lyrics too they're super funny and self-effacing and that's another fun thing about uh, Britpop is they did like none of them took themselves too seriously. There's definitely a, a self-awareness and sense of humor that I appreciate. And it's definitely there in Pulp. For sure, I'm reading this great story about Jarvis Cocker falling out of a window to impress a girl by trying to do a Spider-Man impression, <laughs> then ending up in a hospital, and then he had to go to a bunch of shows in a wheelchair. This is the <laughs> '80s. That's that is a great first paragraph to have uh, for personal life on Wikipedia. That's that's it. <laughs> no, it's, there's more. That's just that's what they start with. You know, usually personal uh, life is like, oh, they married such and such. But his first thing is talking about like breaking his legs because he's trying to be Spider-Man. Something that I did not know about Pulp was that they'd been around for quite a bit, at least longer than the other groups we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, with them, it's an interesting thing because uh, I guess it was a group Jarvis Cocker started in like high school or something, and then he, I don't know, tried different professions or tried different incarnations of the band, and nothing ever really stuck until they got to the early 90s and this sort of what's known as the kind of classic pulp lineup and. For whatever reason, they just sort of lined up with the whole Britpop thing. Like, it, it kind of feels like they were trying to find their sound, and then there were these other bands, uh, like Blur and Suede, I guess, that were doing this thing that wasn't so completely different of, of what Pulp's strengths were. And, yeah, it's, it's funny how that happens sometimes. A band just kind of needs to find their groove and, and, and once they do they become big but it's it's, it's a struggle sometimes <laughs> you can't all be Oasis and be huge off of your first album sometimes it takes a while I can't remember if you mentioned uh, if you'd listened to any of that early pulp stuff I haven't I, I don't feel like any of it is, is like that highly regarded but I'm sure some of it's interesting yeah the first album I've heard of theirs is, is his and hers which is kind of their first really big album that's like 94 and yeah i've still only listened to the the i guess last four albums they made which are all all really good but 
Yeah, I only listened to different class, but it was pretty much for the first time, and this was recently, and it was pretty great. I really enjoyed it. Some of the notes I wrote down were crooner vocals, breathy, romantic. It, for some reason, I wrote most 80s out of the four. I don't know, because I didn't hear the first Suede album, but it di- I definitely could feel like it was like related to the 80s in a good way. Like The 80s, that was a good, that was a good time, too. And then I wrote Disco 2000, because that song is, I just really loved that song and fell in love with that song. Oh, yeah. That was really fun. Why do you think Different Class has become like this legendary rock album? Um, I mean, I feel like it definitely helps that it has common people on it. Like, I feel like that is, even though it maybe wasn't the biggest crossover hit, it feels like the most emblematic song of what Britpop represented, you know, talking about the the class culture basically in britain which is a big thing that we we don't have as much in uh, the u.s because we have racism instead <laughs> and uh <laughs> but yeah i mean that's just it's just one of those songs that i i always have a good time listening to i always get pumped up and i feel like it always kills every time i watch a performance of pull, playing it live at one of those giant <laughs> outdoor uk music festivals it's just like this uk anthem which is weird because it's you know not a that well known of a song here but uh and then i just think there's a lot of other yeah good songs on there like disco 2000 or misshapes and <laughs> underwear is a fun song too and uh yeah I don't know. It's just a good album. I think you'll be happy. You'll be happy to know that Common People was featured on WatchMojo.com's top 10 songs that were Britpop anthems. It was like number three. Should be number one. Number one was Bittersweet Symphony. And I was like, that beat Wonderwall? Hmm. It is weird that the Verve had (laughs) kind of the one band other than Oasis that had a big hit in America. Even though I guess I I would call them Britpop, it's just they seem more serious than a lot of Britpop, and like their songs are way longer than other Britpop bands. But I guess they're they're (laughs) Britpop-ish. Yeah. They were like late to the show, too. That album's like 98. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of after the initial rise. Okay, so let's talk about Blur then. City dweller, successful fella, thought to himself, oops, I've got a lot of money. Caught in a rat race, terminally. I'm a professional cynic, but my heart's not in it. I'm paying the price of living life at the limit. Blur, I don't even know how I became a Blur fan. It's all a blur. (laughs) I definitely knew I definitely knew song two in the nineties, because that song was a hit in America, which is weird because it's the one song that sounds nothing like any other blur song. It's not very representative of the group, but is a big hit in ninety seven. So I probably found them through that 
like song. Eventually found out who what band did that song, and then discovered their other work and kind of started piecing it together. Probably in high school, like way later. Like I certainly didn't know about them in the '90s or probably even in the early 2000s. And it was kind of difficult to know where to start with a band like Blur, because uh, I mean. If you look at a Blur album, they're almost always like 16, 20 tracks long. They're like 56 to 60 minutes. But what's cool about Blur albums is they're all like over the place. They're but in a good way. Like they're diverse. There's experimental songs. There's there's more like common kind of Brit pop songs. And then you'll get something that's like a ballad with an orchestra in it. And I think that's what appealed to me is that you can listen to a whole album and every track you'll get something a little different. It's just a little overwhelming at times. I don't know. Like, I, I told you, like, oh, God, you got to check out Blur. I don't know, like, how someone who's never listened to Blur or, or just not a lot of Blur would approach that. Like, what did what did you do? Uh, I listened to Park Life because I feel like that's the most acclaimed of their albums and the one that's sort of most representative of, of Britpop. Um and then I did listen to the 97 self-titled album, which I liked. <laughs> but I like that I think, one, too. I think out of the three I listened to, I actually like Modern Life is Rubbish probably the it's most. A uh, maybe just because <laughs> I, I guess it, it doesn't seem as all over the place. It seems like it has a little more of a unified sound. Like it's very much them. I don't know. <laughs> sort of sounding like the kinks like the, the british pop thing where it's like sort of acoustic some of the time and also electric some of the other time yeah something about uh you mentioned the kinks like blur feels very british to me in a way that they're very like prim and proper and like like they came out of like uh like art school you know that's where they formed their band like in college and they're, they're just like there's something about their music that felt a little more higher brow to me i don't know maybe that's just how i felt about it mm-hmm. but you know i felt like yeah that's that's their sound i don't know which blur album i gravitate to the most it probably is the 97 one even though i feel like people are like oh that's just like the commercial one you just like that because it has song too but like <laughs> it's got a lot of other cool songs on it too like I'm a big fan of that song, M-O-R. It's pretty rockin'. And uh, there's some weird stuff. There's, like, Country Sad Ballad Man, where it, it sounds like Damon Olivar and just showed up and dicked around and then left, like, for a couple minutes. And it's on the album. Everything's on the album. Everything recorded is on the album. <laughs> I was trying to find uh, who was, like, the big creative force, and it sounds like it was Damon Olivar, and even though it's, it's weird when you see, like, a front man who on stage doesn't play any instruments, you assume the guitar players writing all the music and they definitely were like a cohesive group, but I think Damon Albarn was the creative force. And I think obviously more proof of that is he's had like a billion side projects where he's always the leader. You know, he obviously the biggest one is the gorillas good, the bad and the queen. It's a band. I like he's, he's had his own solo album, rocket juice in the moon, you know, all sorts of stuff. So he's actually done fairly well. Maybe the best out of, I don't know if it's the best, but you know, out of all these Britpop guys, he's he's really sustained himself. And I think that is because he's so weird. I mean, that's a weird thing with me where I feel like I probably do about the gorillas before I do about Blur. And I was like, oh, this guy did a thing before, <laughs> before the cartoon band. That's cool. 
Yeah, I mean, it's probably the same for me. It's funny that's a mystery to so many people because he sounds exactly the same. Like, oh yeah, it's an unmistakable blur. voice. <laughs> it's very—I don't even know how you describe that. Just very London. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've been a big fan of a lot of his a lot of his side projects too. Like, I continue to to follow him and see where he goes because he's always experimenting, whether it be with like pop or electronic or rap or reggae, you know. Um, it kind of seems like he kind of wanted Blur to end, like so he could just dive into that stuff because he didn't think that stuff was well suited for Blur. Because there is one Blur album where their guitar player left, where it's just the three of them, and it's getting pretty weird. So you just feel like he was just itching to get out of there and just try something totally different. Um, which is kind of a shame at the same time, though, because I'm a big fan of their guitar player, Graham Coxon. Yeah, I think I think. Out of a lot of the bands we've talked about, he's one of my favorite musicians out of the lot. I think he's a really fantastic guitar player. And the other guys are probably good. I don't know. Bass player, drummer. They're probably fine. <laughs> Whatever their names are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with Alex. I think that's one of the guys' names. And let's go with uh, with Joe. That sounds like a good name. <laughs> it's a good, solid name. Uh, Blur is like mm, the one Dave. band where... His name's Dave. Dave. Close. I knew I knew Alex was one. Dave. Same yeah, thing. That was right. It's one syllable. <laughs> uh, but like I was going to say, Blur is probably the one band where if someone's like, oh, what should I check out? I might even just recommend their greatest hits. They came out with like greatest hits in like the late 90s, early 2000s. Maybe it was 2000. And I really like that compilation. I'd say that's actually a pretty good place to start. Otherwise, you might get, you know, it might be too much. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but with our next band, I, I always know what to recommend. And our next band <laughs> is motherfucking Oasis, the biggest <laughs> band in history. <laughs> It's the band that, like, out of all these bands, like, we probably both at least knew about them in the 90s. Like, they were that big to where, you know, some kids who weren't even really into music yet knew about them just because they're so ingrained in pop culture in the 90s. Why do you think Oasis was, like, so much bigger than all the other groups? I mean, they weren't (laughs) that much bigger, but they're definitely the biggest. I think it kind of came down to the fact that they just wanted to be the biggest band in the world. I mean, the first song of their first album is called Rock and Roll Star. And just talking about how much they want to be Rock and Roll Star. Like, this came in the wake of, you know, grunge where everyone was very hesitant to embrace rock stardom and it didn't end well for those that were kind of burdened with (laughs) with being a rock star and here come these two lads from manchester just like fuck it we don't give a fuck (laughs) we're gonna be bigger than everyone and it's just uh, you know noel gallagher could could back it up with some some good songs and his, his little brother had a 
I don't know, bratty, <laughs> frontman-like stage presence. And they just, I don't know, they just, they just had that rock star drive and just did it. Yeah, and I mean, despite all that sibling rivalry, it did, it did seem like they had a great leader in Noel Gallagher. Like I was, you know, I've, I've read things and and, and seen documentaries where it talks about, you know, Liam starting this band and. Noel was kind of just like roadie, like a roadie for like bands and stuff. But then like he had these songs, and he came in. He's like, "All right, we're doing all my songs. You're only like Bonehead, which is that one guy's nickname. Which I wonder if that guy liked that because he's like partially bald. <laughs> bonehead, you're only. <laughs> it's funny to say. You're only playing rhythm. You're only playing bar chords. Okay, you're just playing bar chords, and we're keeping the song simple and. Drummer guy, you keep it fucking simple, okay? We're playing this fucking simple. I get to do all the solos mm-hmm. and the back vocals. And, yeah, it's like he had a vision. And maybe he's a, he's a douche about it, and Liam was a douche back. But, like, you know, he, he he knew where to take the band. Like, it's funny. is is like, as dumb as those guys may have seemed and directionless, like, they, they were focused on what they wanted. Like you're saying, they wanted to be the biggest and they knew how to do it, and they stuck to it, and that's why they got so big. And definitely, maybe was their big breakout album, and that's a great album. Uh, but then after that, what's the story of Running Glory? Like that's like what I talked about earlier. Like that's the one album that I'd recommend. Like if you need, like you can listen to this, and you're good for Oasis. Like there's other good stuff, but this is great. And like I, that's probably the first. I don't know if it's the first album of them I heard. I think it is. I think it is. And wow, like I can still listen to that and have so much fun because it's it's so huge. I don't know. Um, do you like that album, Colin? Yeah, I like it a lot. I mean, I I've listened to it a fair number of times just in, just in preparation for this podcast, but also just because it's a really easy album to put on and enjoy because every song's super catchy and just pleasant and it's it's definitely not as as down and dirty of a rock album than than definitely maybe i mean they were definitely going for a pop audience i think with this one and it's just like yeah the songs are good and they they hold up and i yeah it's it's just a kind of great pop rock album which no one really makes any more albums like this I guess the thing is, these days, I feel like you're more likely to run into a bunch of people that will criticize the album for being, like, shallow and, like, corporate fuck and not, like, real music that has meaningful things to say. But I don't know. I feel like what Oasis is saying on this album is what they felt. Like, and, like, you like you were saying, their, their first song on their first album was Rock and Roll Star. It's like, they want to be rock and roll stars. That's all they're concerned about. Like... Their feelings don't go much deeper than, you know, let's fucking rock this shit. That's what they like. Like, they're being honest to themselves, you know. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, at least in regards to the music. So, I don't know. I feel like people like they're, like think they're really cool <laughs> are more inclined to dislike Oasis. <laughs> I mean... They're an easy band to hate, I, I would think. I mean, they're just so pompous. I, mean, I, 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 like you, I, I also watched that recent Oasis documentary that came out last year, Supersonic. And there's just yeah, there's so many passages where 
Noel or Liam were just like, we were the best fucking band ever. <laughs> it's like, you guys weren't that good. I mean, you had two really good albums, but after that, it's like, eh, you were good, but let's, let's not get carried away. I wish I could just get a list of every single famous person that Oasis has made fun of, because I feel yeah. like the comments are always hilarious. I can't remember any of them off the top of my head, but they've insulted everybody. Radiohead, Coldplay, Franz Ferdinand. My favorite. I remember. I remember what they said about Franz Ferdinand. It's like sounds like fucking Roy said Fred. <laughs> <laughs> you know the I'm too sexy guys. The one that blows my mind the most is I feel like once George Harrison may have even criticized him just a little bit. Just a little bit. And they're like, well, fuck you. It's like, come on, guys. Like, we, we ripped off hero. all your music, but fuck you. It's it's funny how many times Oasis has been like called out for plagiarism. I find that interesting. I don't think they're like trying to go out and rip off songs. I think they just write very simple melodies, so it's just bound to happen. Uh, but I don't know. That's one of those things that who knows. But it's happened a lot. Like, what was it? Um, Shaker Maker is is like very similar in melody to I'd like to teach like the world to sing like drink a Coke that that Coke song from the seventies. Got sued for that. There's another one. Um, they have a song that uh, I can't remember the song, but like it sounds exactly like a song by Neil Innes that he did for the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. So now he's credited for that. Like, there's so many songs that other people are credited on because they ripped them off. But I think they were just too lazy to think about it. <laughs> I mean, the one that always gets me, and I can never get past it, is that I think it's it's some, it's a song off definitely maybe. I think it's Cigarettes and Alcohol, where the opening riff sounds exactly like Bang a Gong by T-Rex. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's literally just dan dan but yeah might as well steal from the greats i mean as long as they're turning into good songs i'm okay with it maybe the original musicians aren't okay with it uh so colin i'd be curious to know how much you know about post what's a story of morning glory oasis Mm. well in preparation for this podcast, I did listen to Be Here Now just as kind of a curiosity because mm-hmm. I feel like that is the album where their ego and the fame and the drugs and everything just kind of ran away with with the album. And it's just this long sort of hazy mess of, of, a, of an album. And it's, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a weird one. I'm sure Liam Gallagher will be the first to admit, like, yeah, we definitely should have reined it in on that one. <laughs> like, not not too proud of that one. It does have Johnny Depp on it, though, playing guitar. Ooh. Yeah, I don't really like that album very much. It's too long. <laughs> like, all around the world, it's like nine minutes long. Fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like I don't like most of those ones from the late 90s. And then I think the album where I kind of get interested again is they have an album in the early 2000s called Heathen Chemistry. I'm sure it got horrible reviews, but I kind of like it. <laughs> um, it has the main theme for the butterfly effect, so I'm sure you you know it well. Sure. Even though I haven't <laughs> seen that film, but sure. It plays over the end credits, so yeah. But what I like about that later period of Oasis, and I'm pretty sure, like, again, critics will disagree with me vehemently. Like, 
you know, nobody likes that later stage of Oasis. But what I thought was cool is in the early, mid-2000s, they, um, you know, Bonehead was long gone. So was, the, they had, they had um, actually, they had their their second drummer for a pretty long time. They had him until like 2004. So he was still around. They got rid of the original bass player. And then they brought in these two guys. Uh, one name was Gem Archer. He was a guitarist. And the other guy's name was Andy Bell, who was from a band I think called Ride, who I think was actually another notable Britpop band. Or well, actually, they were, shoe, uh, they're shoegazing, I think. Shoegaze. I've heard their first two albums. I really like that band. So, yeah, but what's cool is those two guys joined Oasis, and they wrote songs, which is so interesting because, you know, in the 90s, it's all Noel. These guys wrote songs, and I liked their songs. I thought they were good. They didn't sing them, but they wrote them. And then I think that worked out best, though I'm probably biased on Don't Believe the Truth because that's the album that really made me an Oasis fan because that was the album they were supporting when I first saw them live in uh, 2005. Everett Event Center. I think it's now called Comcast Arena. And I went to go see Jet. And Jet was the second of... They're the second opening act. It was it was uh, Kasabian, and there was Jet. <laughs> and then we're like, should we stay for Oasis? And we're, like me and my dad and my brother were like, yeah, I mean, we know Oasis. We all knew Wonderwall. We're like, yeah, it might be okay. And they put on a great show. I loved it. Like, Liam has so much stage presence, you know? He, he literally just does that thing where... His hands are behind his back, like, the whole show. <laughs> and he leans into the mic, you know? Yeah. There's one part, too. He had, like, a tambourine, but it's one of those ones where it's, like, it's only round on one side, and the other side just, like, a handle. So he, like, put it on his head and then just stood there for, like, a whole song that he wasn't singing with a tambourine on his head. I mean, he's, he's, got, he's got, like, a big black trench coat and sunglasses on. And he's just like, wow, this guy thinks he's a badass, and I kind of, I'm all about it. Like, what a... Like, maybe that guy's an asshole in real life, but this guy puts on a hell of a show. <laughs> and that stood out to me. And then I remember it also stood out to me that Noel Gallagher literally switches a guitar on every single song. He has, he has like, a rack of guitars on stage. He has, like, 40 guitars. <laughs> They're almost all hollow bodies. Like, yeah. it's just so... They, the guys are, like... They just, like, they know they're the shit. <laughs> and I like it. Like, that's what a rock star is. And that blew me away, and I had a great time. What I loved yeah. is they didn't even – I don't think they even really knew where they were. Like, because <laughs> near the end of the show, I was in uh, second row. Good – pretty good uh, seats. Hmm. I remember, like, uh, Noel Gallagher saying, like, thank you, Seattle. And then, like, I hear some guy in the front row shout, you're in Everett. And then Noel Gallagher says – Fucking Everest. <laughs> and it's like, okay, of course he doesn't know where the fuck Everett is, but I like that he thought Everest. Like Mount Everest. It's <laughs> just like he said that into the mic. Yeah. <laughs> the place is called the Everett Event Center, too, you know? It's like. They so don't care where they are. <laughs> but that was like right as the show was ending. <laughs> like he yeah. said that. He said that and then they went to their last song, which was a cover of My Generation, which is pretty cool. And uh, That show, yeah, that show sticks with me. I saw them one more time in 2008, which turned out to be their last show in Seattle ever. Uh, They're supporting whatever that album's called. Dig out your soul, I think. Yes. That one kind of sucks, but, you know, whatever. That was a fun show, too, though. 
they played uh, I Am the Walrus. That is cool. <laughs> that was great. That'll I'll always remember that. I Am the Walrus. Who opened for so, them? It was Matt Costa, who had a hit in like 2008 called Mr. Pitiful. He did not play it, so I fucking hate that guy. And then it was uh, Ryan Ryan Adams in the Cardinals, yeah. and I was so bored. <laughs> Oasis came out on that second show. They played way more of their older songs. Like when I first saw them, it was almost all their new album, plus you know, like maybe four of their classics. But the second time I saw them, their new album wasn't out yet, so they are mostly playing like deep cuts and and older songs and. They played "Live Forever" and all sorts of great stuff. So, they were a great band. It was, it was, it's a, it was a lot of fun to see. Though it, it makes sense that they broke up because <laughs> they're uh, literally fighting the entire time fighting. they were together. I think their last show, they were at a festival, and Liam and Noel fought before the show, and Noel's just like, "Fuck it, like I'm done. I'm not gonna finish the tour. I'm done. I leave. I quit." And they didn't play that show. And it's funny because I've heard comments where he's saying like, "Like yeah, like." We, you know, if we hadn't fought, we'd probably still be together. And it's just so weird. It's like you're that casual, like you don't care. Like, how many years were you in that band and you didn't like being in that band? If if it just takes one outburst to be like, okay, I'm done. It's just funny. And like, I've heard them say that they do a reunion, but it has to be all about the money. <laughs> so I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty sure Oasis will reunite at some point. Yeah. And I will go see that because that'll be fucking awesome. <laughs> um, it'll be fucking expensive because <laughs> it's yeah. only for the money. Um, but I'm glad that they've kind of taken a break because they probably need to stop doing albums because nobody likes those but me and maybe a couple other people. <laughs> and then just come back and, and, and make people fall in love with them all over again with all their original hits from the 90s. And that's probably what they'll do. And I look forward to that. So... Uh, Wow, yeah, a lot about Oasis, a lot to take in. A couple things that I wrote in as additional side notes. I don't know how much we want to go into these because we've spent so much time. I spent so much time reminiscing. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, obviously in the 90s there is that battle that uh, between Blur and Oasis. Who was better? Who was more popular? You know, their singles would do battle. I don't know if you got to, the chance to read into any of that. It's pretty entertaining. Uh... Not too much. I feel like I just know that, yeah, there was something where they they were releasing singles at the same time and some Blur single got knocked off by one of Oasis's early songs. And, yeah, it, it definitely feels like a sort of, like, slobs versus snobs kind of battle <laughs> since you, yeah. you pointed out that Blur were kind of art school kids and Oasis were just these drunken hooligans drunken soccer hooligans basically <laughs> dressed up in their adidas gear yeah. ready to fight after a few pints it does sound like it was kind of like a creation of the media but then what's so funny is that these two bands like they've developed that rivalry because the media created it like it didn't seem like it was there until the media said there was a rivalry and sen- and then suddenly like you're saying their singles were doing battles and um one of my favorite moments. I don't remember what award show it was, but they won some award. This was around the time Park Life came out. And the first thing Oasis said when they went up to collect their award was, Shit Life! 
because they just beaten Blur for some awards. So, jeez. Yeah. But then Blur shot back. They have that album, that song called Beetle Bum, which is just a whole song that's just a knock at Oasis. So they were in mm-hmm. on it too. I think I think those guys have patched up because uh, Damon Albarn on his new Gorillas album has a song with Noel Gallagher. So mm. I, I guess they're over it. Whatever. If it was ever really a thing, but yeah, it is fun to read about. Um, I guess one other thing to kind of come to a close with Britpop is why do you think maybe it lessened in popularity? Why didn't it la- Why didn't it live forever? Like, hmm. why is there any reason for that? Like, was there a mood shift? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I would have to be a British person to know the answer to that question uh, because I feel like this is is a, a very you know, British uh, movement. And I, I don't know if, if there was some cultural shift that happened in the late 90s in Britain. That, that, yeah. Yeah. It seems like the trend over, at least in the United States, was, and again, I don't really know how it came about, but you mentioned it earlier the Garage Rock, I think it's called the Garage Rock Revival. That became popular, at least in the United States. So it seemed like over here, at least, we were more interested in returning to a more simplified version of rock music, where it's like things got so grandiose in the 90s. And then for some reason, you know, who, who knows why trends changed? People wanted something more primal, more back to basics. So there wasn't really any place for a lot of those bands in that scene, you know, because they're, they're only used to playing, you know, uh, like stadiums and islands with like millions of people. Yep. They weren't they were gonna fill some like guy's garage and play a show there. <laughs> so it's, it's all or nothing. Need all, all of Britain to show up to a gig or or nobody. <laughs> no in between. Okay. Well, there you go. That's Britpop. So let's move on to I guess a new segment. Uh, I guess we're gonna call it for now Rock Book Club which I assume is talking about books related to rock and roll. Colin, what have you got for us today? (laughs) Well, I just got uh, done finishing a book called Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil and Jillian McCain, which is a oral history of punk, basically. (laughs) Um, But it, it... focuses more on the 70s scene i mean it starts with the velvet underground and then goes all the way up until you know the late 80s where you know all those cbgb's bands got big and it's uh it's really good but it's also the kind of book that feels kind of i don't trashy i guess it's because it's it's an oral history so it's everybody's interviews and everybody just talking about New York City in in the seventies, and you just like <laughs> you feel like you're you're just in it in the dirt and the grime and the drugs and everybody just fucking and <laughs> ODing and but also making just some of the best most raw music ever and it's uh, yeah it's 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 really good even if you feel a little dirty after <laughs> reading it but <laughs> and also like you're like wow some of these some of these people in these bands were total assholes like Lou Reed just comes off like as the biggest dick in this book and yeah 
but it's 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 definitely good if you want to sort of get an idea of what that scene was and this was this was a good book to read after our last podcast where we talked about 1977 i think i started reading it like right after we recorded it but uh yeah it's, it's a good rock book so was this specifically the american scene did you say new york it it does delve into the the London punk thing. It mostly just delves into the Sex Pistols and kind of uh, what it was like when they came over here. I mean, it's interesting because they also interview uh, Malcolm McLaren a bunch, who had actually managed the New York Dolls, I think, in New York, and then he moved to London and kind of started the Sex Pistols. And it goes in a bit, uh, you know, Sid Vicious uh, moving to New York and getting involved with Nancy Spungen and them just being heroin addicts and him maybe killing her and him also dying of an overdose. Uh, you know, all, all that kind of fun, wholesome stuff. <laughs> but yeah. yeah when it, did it, it come out? Ooh. I don't know. I think I have like the 10th anniversary edition. So it probably came out in like the early 2000s, I would guess. Okay. And is there pictures? Uh yeah, it's got a good <laughs> a good amount of pictures. It's like good. the pictures are split up into three sections. I don't like it when you read a uh, a Dodd fiction book and they only have one part with all the pictures that are right in the middle. Oh God, you know what's annoying about that is when there's pictures of stuff you haven't read about yet. You're like, well, I don't know. I don't get this. What is yeah. this? We haven't discussed this yet. Exactly. Well, they, they parcel out the pictures well in this book. That's <laughs> good. Like, That's all okay. I need, Colin. I just need to know if there's pictures and if there's yeah. a lot of them because I'm a busy man. I don't always have time to read, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I'll, I'll read that. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So let's move on to our final segment. This is a segment we do every week. At least when we do the show. We don't do the show every week. We do the show like every it's month. It's like once a month. Anyways. <laughs> once a month. It's called Yesterday and Today, and it's a segment where we review, or I guess recommend, excuse me. We recommend one album from the past that we enjoy, and then one that's more recent, you know, past few years or this year preferably. Uh, and I usually go first, so here we go. My yesterday pick, uh, the way I got into this album actually has to do with my today pick. So I kind of went backwards. So I'll, I'll, I guess I'll explain that more when I talk about my today pick. But So my yesterday pick is a album from Japan from a band called Happy End, and it's called uh, Kazamashi Roman. I'm sure it's somewhere on the Wikipedia, and uh, since since like it, it's it's 
a long story how I got into this band. I'll, I'll just describe this this album. Happy End was a four-piece Japanese band, early 70s. They did three albums, and I guess you could describe them as kind of folk, kind of blues, kind of rock, pop, uh, just a good mix of all that. It's very Western-sounding music. Like, there's a song on this album that has, like, steel guitar, so it's very much inspired by American music. And I think the song that most people know from this album that draws most people to this album is they have a song called Kaze Wo Atsumete, which is a very poppy song uh, that was in the movie Lost in Translation. So here I was thinking I was really cool by finding this album, only to think that, you know, I'm sure everyone else found out about this album like 15 years ago when that movie came out. I just didn't remember that song was in that movie. It's a very poppy song. The songwriting is divided between two guys. I don't remember their names. So yeah, it's like a collaborative thing between these two guys. There's like a third guy who does one song. So I guess he's the George <laughs> Harrison. And then the drummer does all the lyrics, like like yeah. Neil Peart, I guess. I don't get how that works. And one fun fact about this album is apparently on Rolling Stone, Japan's 100 Greatest Rock Albums, it's number one. So I guess it's pretty good. A lot of people like it, and I liked it a lot too. It's a good mix of folk and rock and pop, and yeah, I'd highly recommend it, especially if you like Lost in Translation. Sure, I do. Um, so my yesterday album, I don't know, just felt appropriate and also happened to be something I'm listening to, but it's not an album technically, and it didn't come out in the past, but it's a compilation of a band from the past it's uh this two cd set that uh numero group put out called action painting and it's a compilation for the band the creation went to college studied art to be an artist make a star Studied hard, gained my degree No one seemed to notice me Who were a 60s band Who were probably well known I was going to say most well known For the song Making Time And they didn't record that many songs I feel like this two CD set has like most of their output Because it was mostly singles And I think they may have released an album But it was, you know, kind of just one of those albums Where they just slapped a bunch of the band's singles and B-sides and stuff And this is, I guess, Nubaro Group was trying to put out like the definitive creation collection And it's, you know, just great 60s British guitar pop that's like a little heavier than than most of the sort of British invasion stuff. I guess the band they get compared to the most is The Who because uh, Shel Talmy, who produced that first Who album, My Generation, also produced a lot of the Creations songs, and it, it definitely has that sort of raw kind of R&B mixed with garage rock sound and of course, the other thing they're known for is their guitarist would sometimes play with a bow, a violin bow. That sounds weird, but also kind of cool. Uh, yeah, you probably know them. 
I know Making Time. It's in Rushmore. Mm-hmm. So this is our uh, our collection of songs and hit indie movies. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but again, like it's a band. I don't know any of their other songs, so it's always cool when I find out that a band from that era, which is my favorite era of music, basically, has other stuff worth delving into. So that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, a bow. That's awesome. Not a lot of people do that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, some of those bands, like from Nuggets, did weird stuff. Like, uh, what was there's 13th floor elevators. What's that weird instrument on that one song? You know what I'm saying? You're going to miss me. Yeah. What the hell was that thing? <laughs> I feel like you told me it was an electric chug. Yeah. I read that somewhere. <laughs> Whatever that is. It's fucking sweet is what it is. Mm-hmm. Now, if you just get a band with a bow and an electric jug, you're, like, you're just going to rock the house. Like, it's just going to be great. Cool. That sounds interesting. You'd like them. Oh, sure. It's I totally bet. your kind of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, my Today album is, is an album I didn't think was going to be my thing, but then it turned out it was. And uh, it is the album Async by Ryuchi Sakamoto. I guess he's labeled as electronic. Like, that's how I found him on Pitchfork, which usually when I see that electronic like label, I'm like, eh, skip. But uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the name looked familiar, so I clicked I clicked on it, and I, I checked it out. It's re- there's some, like, synth here, but it's really more of, like, almost classical and a lot of piano. And then I, I found out that he this is because, like, he was a uh, – he's been a composer for some films. He actually did the soundtrack to The Revenant, and he won an Oscar in the 80s for doing the soundtrack to The Last Emperor with David Byrne, which is a collaboration that I did not know existed. So <laughs> I guess I'll have to check out that movie someday for the soundtrack. Um, but what this is interesting, what's interesting about Richie Sakamoto is that's how I found out about Happy End because Richie Sakamoto, a very influential artist in the electronic like music scene in Japan, and uh, back in the 80s and 70s, he was in a band called Yellow Magic Orchestra. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Mm-mm. They're a band that our friend AJ told me about. He's like, oh, this band's fucking sweet. And uh, they're okay. They're okay. But another member in that three-piece band was Harumi Hosono from Happy End. So that's how I, I found out about him. I went backwards from this album to find out about my Yesterday album. But uh, Async, yeah, it's just like it's ambient. It's cool. It's pianos. It's synth. There's some songs that are just like weird like bows like clanking against frying pans you know it's like weird ambience and but it's really pretty i really like it you know he's he's an older dude but he's still very experimental so that's cool Uh, and uh pitchfork liked it It was on their one of their best new music you know that whole section of the site so it's cool at least so it's very cool (laughs) colin is your today pick cool yeah, but it's like cool in a way that you like wouldn't understand. Man. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, my I don't have anything that <laughs> interesting, so I'll just recommend the album that I just reviewed on MollyPlease.com. It's Goths by uh, the Mountain Goats. Mm-hmm. 
Mountain Goats are a band that have a lot of good albums. And so I can see how they can be sort of daunting <laughs> for people who aren't uh, initiated with, with the Mountain Goats. But um, I don't know. They, they do a lot of concept albums, I feel like. I, I mean, it almost feels like they have less regular albums than concept <laughs> albums at this point. And I, I think that's good just because, I mean, John Darnielle is just a really good good songwriter he's he's just he's just been doing it for years and so it's always kind of a matter of just figuring out new ways to rearrange sort of that core mountain goat sound and the way they did it on this one was john darnielle doesn't play any guitar on the album which wow. you know is a big part of their sound is his acoustic guitar playing and so it's it's all sort of just like keyboards and and piano and stuff but still like drums and bass also and it's it's cool i like it i like it more than the last mountain goats album and it's uh yeah, just another solid album from a really solid band i've always wanted to get in the mountain goats and i'll probably listen to that new one because it sounds interesting but what's is there another one that like that's like the one you'd recommend to people you know to yeah start i with? would say this i would say the sunset tree is probably their best i mean tallahassee's really good too um yeah those two tallahassee or the sunset tree true what all right what i would recommend cool and i would recommend that everyone listen to this podcast because it's so great and we have mm-hmm. so much fun and uh, you can find us at mildlypleased.com or you can find us on iTunes by searching Mildly Pleased and you'll find Rock Talk and all our other shows that happen off and on like Bitching Tents and some kind of movie. And uh, yeah, so just uh, join us next time because uh, you and I are going to live forever. Maybe I don't really want to know how you got in girls cause I just want to fly pain in the morning rain as it soaks you to the bone maybe i just want to fly want to live but don't want to die maybe i just want to fly